Uh, our text this morning comes from the book of Lamentations, which is probably n- not a great title if you're in marketing. Um, this book was written by Jeremiah after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, after the temple had been destroyed, after the population of Judah had been deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. And this is the great national disaster. This is the psychic wound that the Jewish people deal with even today in some ways. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. This is the word of God. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Father, we ask this morning that you would speak to us in the reading and the preaching of your word. I recognize that if anything is to happen, you must take my feeble offerings, my feeble thoughts, my feeble voice, and add something to them and give them power. And that's our only hope. If you don't come, nothing works. As the old hymn says, all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. Sinners pray in holy manner. will be showered all around. So Lord, do that. Amen. Uh, I think perhaps one of the most difficult things to understand in the Bible is a set of messages, thoughts, ideas, whatever you want to call it, that weave a parallel but separate track through the Bible. And it can be very difficult trying to reconcile those two themes, shall we say. The first is a set of messages that weave their way through the Scriptures like a golden thread. These are the messages that speak of God's mercy, of God's forgiveness, of God's faithfulness, of God's intimate and ongoing care for his people, his love for them, and most of all, his preservation of them and their salvation and their blessing. That's the theme of the song we just sang. Christ is my treasure. I know I've blown it, but he's going to forgive me. He's going to see me safely home. He is the best thing there is. And I love him and I long for him. And he will take care of me. He will forgive me. Then there are passages that weave their way through the scriptures like a scarlet thread. Those passages speak of God's justice. They speak of God's wrath against sin. They speak of God's judgment and the inescapable nature of his judgment, particularly against his covenant people. Indeed, we saw 
both of these in last week's text from Exodus 34, didn't we? Let me just refresh your memory here to turn to Exodus 34. If you've got a Bible, you can do that too. It's pretty easy to find. Exodus 34. And listen to the contrast. Exodus 34 and verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. There's the golden thread. But look at the last half of the same verse but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's the scarlet thread. And how are these two threads? How are the scarlet thread and the golden thread related to each other? Or to put it another way and to make it personal, how do you know which thread will apply to you and to your life. I assume you want the golden thread and not the scarlet one. I assume that you want mercy and not judgment, that you want your sins forgiven and not held against you. Well, you may say, isn't that what Jesus is for? But there's a pretty big wrinkle there because Jesus himself keeps the theme in the New Testament. He speaks both of his mercy and his judgment. In Matthew 7, he talks about people who would come to him on the last day, claiming to have done wonderful things on his behalf, and he casts them away. And they get the scarlet, not the gold. How do we make sense of all of this? Well, one way that is proven very destructive is to make it about yourself and your obedience. It can be terribly confusing, and it can leave the child of God off balance and unsure of the Lord's attitude towards you. You might say to yourself, am I one of the ones whom he will by no means clear because I am guilty? Because I am guilty. I'm guilty of many things. Will he therefore visit my iniquities upon my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren? Do I deserve that? Probably. Or am I one who despite my many sins and transgressions will find my iniquity forgiven? and his mercy and grace applied to me? Or does he, or do I, flip in and out of each state over time? Over and over, will I get the scarlet or the gold if I flip in and out? Will, it, will, it, will I be eligible for the scarlet on Tuesday, but the gold by Saturday? And what if I die on Thursday? If I sin, does that put me in the red? And if I repent, does that put me back in the gold? These are real questions that people have. What if I sin and never repent of it? What if I can't remember all my sins and therefore I don't confess them and ask forgiveness? Are you even aware of all the sins that you've committed, never mind the ones that you forgot about? 
I, I had a, a friend in southern Ohio uh, about, well, 25 years ago now. And um, he was a godly man. And his father had been a godly man, born-again Christian. His father was a, a lineman for the local electric cooperative. And there was one day when they were called out to do a repair, and he was up in the bucket truck with another guy down below, and something went terribly wrong. And he was electrocuted. And he was viciously burned, and it was extremely painful. And in his pain and in his distress, he said some bad words from his old life. And the other guy on the ground brought him down out of the bucket and laid him out and called for help. But he died. And my friend was haunted. Did my dad, who was a godly man and a born-again Christian, go to hell? Because his last words were curse words in his pain and distress, and he didn't have time to repent. What would you say? Let's try to think these things through together, shall we? Because these are important issues. This is life and death. And perhaps we can proceed from confusion to clarity, and then from clarity to peace, and then from peace to joy. Now, I've said before that the Bible only describes two kinds of people. I mean, there are black and white and Asian, there are old and young, there are rich and poor, there are smart and dumb. But there's really only two kinds of people, those who are saved and those who are lost. And I stand by that. But it's helpful to make one more qualification or clarification for our purposes today. And perhaps it will be easiest to understand by looking not at our contemporary situation, first of all, but at the, in the situation as we find it in the Old Testament, and then use that to shed light on what happens in our day. Now, the Old Testament talks about all these different nations and all these different peoples who lived both in and around the promised land, the land of Israel, at different times and in different eras of history. There were the Egyptians, of course, and the Babylonians, great empires. There were the Edomites and the Moabites and the Philistines and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Canaanites and all sorts of termites everywhere they went. And all of these peoples had no sort of covenant relationship to the Lord God. In fact, they each had their own national or ethnic gods and goddesses who they looked to and who they prayed to and hoped in and served and who and they thought that the God of Israel was just another ethnic deity like theirs. And they would say to themselves as Philistines, well, we Philistines worship Dagon, they thought, and the Jews worship Yahweh. But who is to say which one was really better? The Philistines, because they were successful culturally and technologically and militarily, generally thought that Dagon was better than everybody else's God because he had enabled them to conquer everybody else and their gods, and the Jews kind of struggled with that themselves. Now, and the, the Israelite people very often slipped into that same sort of mindset too, because they did not understand how big Yahweh, the true and living God, really was. But there were some Israelites who had 
better understanding. They had thought carefully about what it meant when the Lord sent all of those plagues on the Egyptians and almost ruined the land completely. And that, just, that showed that, not, that God was not just stronger than Pharaoh. It also showed that God was stronger than Pharaoh's gods, and Pharaoh was the strongest guy around with the strongest army leading the strongest nation. So the thoughtful Jews said, if he took out Ra, the sun god, and all these other deities, maybe he's bigger than those deities. And so... The Israelite, that Israelite, that thoughtful one, knew that the Lord was God above all the other gods and that the other gods were false gods, that they were at best non-existent and at worst demons and deceivers. And so you had all these nations of the earth, what, the, what the, in Hebrew are called the goyim, who did not know the true God and the living God. Their lives were a nightmare of ignorance and superstition and evil and dysfunction because of that. And then you had the Hebrew people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The people who, as a nation, were called in the scriptures his chosen people. And God says, I chose you out of all the nations of the earth, not because you were more numerous than anybody else, you were actually quite small. Not because you were better than everybody else, you were actually a real pain in the rear. I chose you. I set my love upon you, my electing covenant love upon you for my own good pleasure. And to them he gave commandments and laws and statutes. He said to them, I will be your God and the God of your children after you. And he made a covenant with them and he said to them that he would bless them and through them he would bless all the nations of the earth. And he said, whoever blesses you, I will bless. And whoever curses you, I will curse. They were to be a kingdom of priests and a light unto the nations. Any Gentile who wanted to find the true and living God knew his address. It was www.israel.com. You had to go to the Jews. You had to become one of them. And there were a few sprinkled throughout the scriptures. Ruth, a Moabitess, a prostitute that dwelled in Jericho, who was an ancestor of Jesus. Uriah the Hittite, who changed his name to Uriah, Yahweh, because he had adopted the true and living God as his God and had joined himself to the covenant people. You had to go to the Jews. You had to receive circumcision if you were male. You had to keep the commandments and agree to do so. You had to take the Lord as your God. And as we read the history of this covenant people, we find a terrible and a perplexing thing. Their history and their story as it unfolds in the Old Testament shows us that we find not a few, not some, not a sizable minority, but most of these Israelites 
did not love God, did not obey God, did not serve God, did not keep his commandments, not intermittently, but over and over and over again for thousands of years. Think about it, that boggles the imagination. Here's the true and living God. He takes them out of slavery with mighty acts of his hand. He brings them into the land of milk and honey. He conquers their enemies on their behalf. And he gives them these laws. And he says, if you just keep this law, your way will prosper. If you meditate on it day and night and let not its words depart from your mouth, everything you do will prosper and I will make you great. So it wasn't just that he was arbitrarily weird, although there was some of that. It's that he wanted to bless them in their obedience. He actually wanted to give them the things that they were worried about and that they craved. Security, peace, material well-being, prosperity. He, he, He said, just love me and serve me. All of this will be yours. And they said, no. I think we're going to try Baal. I think we're going to try Dagon. I think we're going to try Molech. Not sure we can trust you, God. He gave them his laws, and they broke them without any sense of remorse or wrongdoing. He made a covenant with them, promising all of the blessings they craved if they were obedient, but also threatening curses if they weren't, and they disregarded the covenant. God sent prophets to them to warn them and call them to repentance and tell them when judgment was about to be unleashed, but they murdered the prophets because they told them things that the people didn't want to hear. And then came the judgment. First, for the northern ten tribes. Ten of the twelve tribes in one fell swoop were liquidated. They were carried off. They're lost to history. Other peoples from other parts of the Assyrian Empire were brought in to live in the land that had been theirs. And they, uh, God sent lions among them because they were pagans and they were worshiping pagan gods and, and they kept getting killed by all these lions and they recognized this was not a wildlife management problem, this was a spiritual problem. So they went back to the king of Assyria and they say, send us some priests so that he can instruct us on the ways of the God of this land. And we'll worship him and maybe the lions will stop. And that's where the Samaritans came from. That was those people. So they were pagans, not ethnically Jewish, but they started worshiping God because God had brought lions in among them and they were hated by their southern neighbors. They were considered inferior. And so in one fell swoop, 83.3% of the people of God, the covenant people of God, were wiped out for their unfaithfulness. And he had warned them. He warned them over and over again. He'd given them not just decades, but centuries to repent. And they refused. Now, I hope that you can see that as bad as it was to be a Philistine, for instance, and to worship Dagon, or to be a Phoenician and worship the detestable god Molech, as as liable as that made you to the judgment of God, at least those people had a kind of an excuse. At least they were ignorant of the true and living God. They didn't have any knowledge of the right God. 
When God sent the prophet Jonah to Nineveh, which was the head of the Assyrian Empire, Jonah didn't want to go because those people had been really bad to his people, and he hated them. They were the kind of people who did the kind of things that we just saw in the last month in Israel. They were that bad. And Jonah hated them. And so God sends him to Nineveh, and he preaches to them, and they repent. And he's like, dang it. I knew you were a God who would forgive them. I knew that the judgment wouldn't come because you're merciful. And I don't want mercy on them, God. And God says to him at the end, he says, those people down there are so ignorant of the truth that they don't know their right hand from their left. Why shouldn't I have mercy on them? They are that bad off. So at least that's a kind of an excuse, right? You don't know the true and living God, so of course you're not serving the true and living God. They're still guilty, and there's still a judgment, but it's a mediated judgment. But the Israelite, who was born to the covenant people, who had the law and the sacrifices and the temple worship and the prophets and the scriptures, who God had introduced himself to, and those who still rebelled against that and forsook him, that was by far a worse place to be. Their judgment was ever so much more severe. Their sins weren't an, oops, I didn't know any better. They were not momentary lapses. These were people who said, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I am not going to do it, and I don't believe there will be a single negative consequence to doing so. When I look around me at all of my friends and all of my neighbors, they behave in exactly the same way I do, and God isn't doing a single thing about it, so he must not be worried. Therefore, I'm not. We think we're pretty good people. We're at least as good as our friends and neighbors, maybe better than them. We feel very positively about ourselves. We're going to be just fine, and I'm sure God agrees with us. And God said through the prophet Jeremiah, you thought I was altogether like you, but you're wrong. Well, you ask yourself, what will these folks get? Well, they will get the scarlet, not the gold, right? They'll get judgment, not mercy. And an even more severe judgment than the Philistines, precisely because they took the covenant name of God upon their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They knew his commands and statutes, and they didn't care. And God wasn't just after, in the Old Testament, a legal obedience. He said to his people through Moses, look, circumcise your bodies like you're supposed to, like I've commanded, but what I'm really after is the circumcision of your hearts. Now, what does that mean? Well, the part you circumcise physically is the most sensitive part of the male body. And so what God is after in the circumcision of their hearts is sensitivity to him. The removal of anything that would make them insensitive to him. They knew his commandments and they knew his statutes and they didn't care. But there was a minority among them, a remnant, as they are called in the scriptures. 
They were mixed in among the covenant-breaking people, and often the judgments that God unleashed upon the covenant-breakers also fell on them just because they lived with them. The plagues of locusts and the famine and the defeat by their enemies, all of those things happened to them too. And they knew themselves to be sinners. They knew that they had not always kept God's command, but here's the difference. They earnestly desired to, and they failed. They grieved their failures, and they turned to God in repentance, and they sought his pardon, and they accepted the bad things that came as a chastisement for their sins by way of discipline and correction. And they didn't murmur or charge God with wrongdoing in the midst of them because they loved God, and God was their only hope, and they placed all of their confidence in him, and they waited on him, and they trusted him. And they knew that even though their sins were not as black as the sins of those who had despised the covenants, their sins were still black enough to merit hell. And so they did not go to the Lord and plead their own righteousness and goodness. They pleaded for mercy. They didn't claim any merits on their own. They said, Lord, have mercy on me. And their prayers had two pleas, two uh, promises spoken by God to them, and then they spoke, they pled those promises. God loves it when you plead to him what he's promised. He loves it when you pray his promises, where you said, Lord, you have said it, and here I am expectant, and now you must do it. Two promises that they prayed back to God. The first one was what we found in our call to worship this morning, God's unchanging purposes. First articulated to Abraham, that God would bring blessing and salvation to all the world through his offspring, that a Messiah would come from the seed of Abraham, and therefore they could be sure that God would sustain at least a remnant of the godly people from generation to generation, because God doesn't fail, and he doesn't lie, and he doesn't change. Therefore, even, the, even though the sins of this remnant were as scarlet, God said, I will make them like snow. I will have mercy on you, and I will preserve you. The second thing that they would plead to God was a special quality which God possessed, which in Hebrew is called hesed. The word is often translated in English Bibles as steadfast love. This word appears over 250 times in the Old Testament. This is an eternal, limitless undeserved heart of love and pity and compassion. This is a love that is freely given, and it's given by one who is strong for the help and the support and the supply of critical needs for the weak. Even those weak who have been unfaithful to their beloved and who are turning to him in repentance and sorrow. God's hesed is generous, and it's full, and it's free. And so they would plead to him, God, you promised to make us a people, to bless the world. And God, you are full of steadfast love, which never ceases. Your mercies are new every morning, Lord. And you're not going to change so I know I can count on them. 
this steadfast love is only ultimately available to this tiny remnant. Think about that for a minute. All of the peoples of the world brought Jesus one time. All of the number of that people, most of them were lost. And there's this tiny remnant that is the object of God's special care and blessing. And the steadfast love, the hesed of God, is ultimately available only to this tiny remnant. This is the steadfast love that preserves them and saves them. And so all of the golden threads, in all of the golden verses, in all of the scriptures, are only for this tiny remnant who God has purposed to save and preserve. Listen to the words with these kind of ears, with this in mind. Listen to the words of the prophet Micah. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and you will hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. For who? It's little remnant. But God forgives. Well, what has changed in our time? In one way, not much. The covenant people of God are no longer confined to one ethnic group as they were in the Old Testament. God has expanded Israel as God has engrafted the wild olive branches into the trunk of Israel, as Paul talks about in Romans. He talks about the Israel as an olive tree. The whole history is the, the history of this tree growing, supported by the roots. And God comes in and he breaks off some of the natural branches. And he grafts in some wild branches. And those wild branches take root in the tree. And they are supported by that root. That's us. Here are the wild branches. I know of one person in here, one person who that doesn't apply to, who isn't by nature a wild branch, who is Jewish and a believer in Jesus Christ. The church has not replaced Israel. Israel has absorbed the church. Thou the church is the visible covenant people of God. And so in our day, you have those who are outside of the church, as the Philistines and the Edomites were outside of Israel, and they're lost. And we want to bring them in. We want to engraft them into the trunk. But then you have lots of people who have some sort of connection with the church. They don't really walk with the Lord. They excuse and they justify or they deny their sin. They love God's benefits and his services, which they think will be theirs. But they don't love God. They will sing, Christ is mine forevermore and I have no greater treasure. But in reality, they have a lot of other treasures. And 
they're not that interested in Christ. They're just interested in what Christ might do for them. They don't walk with him. They don't love his people. They lie. They fail to keep their vows. They break his Sabbaths. Their kid's baseball team means more to them than worship. When COVID hit, they used it as an excuse to quit going to church altogether. They are Chinos, Christians in name only. And these are the Christian equivalent of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Jesus calls them weeds in his wheat field. And if that's you, I have nothing to say to you except please repent and turn to the living God. But there is a tiny minority. In the days of Israel, it was perhaps 10% or less. And by some metrics today, it's perhaps 10% or less. They love the Lord. They serve the Lord. They rejoice in the Lord. And they do all those things not to get something back as a fee for service. They do them because they love the Lord. They would die for the Lord. And they will die in the Lord. And for that tiny minority, all of the golden threads of all of the golden passages in all of the scriptures are theirs. If that is you, they are yours. If, that, if you are sincerely a Christ lover, a Christ follower, all I want to do is obey him. All I want to do is love him. All I want to do is draw near to him. All I want to do is be like him. All I want to do is be with him and him with me. All I want is him. When I die, the first person I want to see is not my wife, not my husband, not my grandfather, not my mom, not my dad. It's Jesus. And then after I've seen him, wonderful, I'll talk to the others, but he is the one I want to be with. If that's you, rejoice. Oh, favored one. Let me tell you, if that's you, listen to this. All of the created order, everything that exists in this vast universe was created to bring you into being. God's only son bled and died and rose to redeem you. God's steadfast love, his has said, is for you and it preserves you. His unchangeable purposes and steadfast character are your salvation and security and everything is yours. Everything. The whole universe is yours. You will rule with Christ forever over a redeemed creation. You are more blessed than the highest archangel. The angels are jealous of you. They long to understand why in the world God would pour such blessing, such goodness, such power into a little bundle of mud like you. They say, Lord, I don't understand. And he says, I know, and you never will, but rejoice. It is for you that all of this was done. And everything will be not just okay one day, but magnificent. And you will be there. 
because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning for you. And great is his faithfulness. Amen. Amen.